Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself and Canadian editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. This week, we're going to talk about the S word, status. It's the thing that humans tend to think about a lot, even when we're pretending not to. Why do philanthropists put their names on public buildings? Why do we drive around in cars with letters on the back that advertise the size of the engine under the hood? Why do we spend so much time gossiping about real estate and salaries and job titles? It's all about status. And in his new book, The Status Game, on social position and how we use it, acclaimed author Will Storr argues that status is central to the human condition, and he even includes a typology of different kinds of status hierarchies, including dominance, prestige, and my personal favorite, as you'll know if you follow me on Twitter, virtue. In fact, Storr argues that much of human history can be explained by our shifting adherence to different status norms, and the often tragic consequences of those who run afoul of them. I spoke to Will Storr earlier this month over Skype. Here are excerpts from our conversation. In your book, you talk about a guy by the name of Ben Gunn as an illustration of how no matter what environment we're in, we're always looking for opportunities to seek status. Can you tell listeners a little bit about who this guy was? Well, he basically beat somebody to death who was 11. So at 14 years old, he was imprisoned at what they, what they call Her Majesty's Pleasure in the UK, which means it's an indefinite term. But he ended up being one of, if not the longest serving prisoners in Britain, because every time he was out for parole, he'd do something wrong and, and upset the parole board and get you know, thrown back in again. And so what happened was when, when, he, when he was thrown into prison, prison officers abused him. He, he, he tried to starve himself to death. He, he tried to escape. You know, nothing worked. But then what he did was he, he educated himself, particularly became an expert in prison law as a way of kind of fighting back against the prison officers. He became another archetypal figure, the, the prison lawyer. You know, other prisoners would go to when they were in trouble. And he, and he was so brilliant at understanding what the prison officers were allowed and were not allowed to do that he'd tie them up in knots. And, and he deliberately antagonized them by launching these complaints against, you know, very trivial things. So, so you know, in his own words, he said in prison, you, you get lots of status because if you're a lifer, if you have a life sentence, that you're in the top of the tree. But he also got to status because he was this prison lawyer. He, he was this person that was, had a reputation for really successfully fighting back against the powers that be. After 25 years, he'd been in so long that the, the people were campaigning. There was campaigns out for his release. And he fell in love with this woman called Alex, came in to teach English. And they, they fell in love and they were having sex in the stationery cupboard and things like this. All he had to do to be released and, and be happy, you'd think, was just behave for a little bit. And he, he couldn't do it. He had everything waiting from outside the prison. They were going to get together. He was going to live with her. She was going to look after him. And he just wouldn't do it. And, and you know, eventually she confronted him and said, just, just behave, just for God's sake, just for a few months. And he admitted to her, you know, I don't want to. Uh, you know, I want to stay in here. You know, the reason is he, he had status in prison. He'd found these games to play in prison, gave him meaning and purpose and an identity. And outside he had nothing. And what eventually sort of dragged him out, Alex very brilliantly said to him, why didn't you write a blog? 
about about your time in prison and so he wrote this blog prisoner ben and it won an orwell prize very prestigious prize in the uk and, and then he he left with a warning ringing his ears from the prison service you know you're going to be nothing out there and you're going to suffer and indeed he did he had a nervous breakdown when he left prison because of this so that to me was just really interesting you know when, when you put a human brain in a situation where there is no status what does a successful and in inverted commas human brain do well it finds games to play in which you earn status and that's what he did and and, and you know he became so absorbed in this game of fighting against the prison service that he didn't want to leave prison even to be in the arms of the woman that he loved in all your research have you ever found any example of any society or subculture that has no gamified status hierarchy no people often talk about you know hunter-gatherer groups being egalitarian there's a slightly old-fashioned left-wing view that pre-industrial revolution or, or before that, you know, pre-civilization even. Well, sorry, just to interrupt, you have a great story in here from Micronesia involving yams. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So this idea that we are, um, you know, naturally egalitarian isn't true. Every individual is very interested in their own status, their own relative status. And there's lots of um, norms, social norms there that keeps people roughly in the same place. And it's, and it's police, not because nobody cares about status. It's quite the opposite that everybody cares very much about status this thing of the yams was um amazing paper it was published in 1948 by an anthropologist called william bascom and yeah he he found this status game on this micronesian island of pompeii which involved the growing of yams and life there was very stratified very hard to move up it was all family-based very hard to move up in status but there was one way you could move up, and that was by growing massive yams. So this was a game open to the, the men of the island, and they'd have semi-regular chiefly feasts. And the man who brought the biggest yam to the feast would be publicly declared number one, and everybody would be very jealous of this person. Status obsessed as we are, what happened in Micronesia is that all the, all the men became absolutely obsessed with growing massive yams to the extent that the yams were so big that it, he, he gave an example where it took 12 men to carry a, one yam into a feast on a special stretcher. Uh, made with poles, in, you know, and canvas. So, and to me, that's just a, just, just a really great example of, of the brilliance of human ingenuity. If you attach status onto something, humans are going to do everything they can to win that game. And, and if you attach status to growing massive yams, they will grow absolutely massive yams. The modern equivalent of that, <laughs> except for the fact that you can't eat them. I have a particular fascination with German sports cars. And so you'll see uh, somebody with a Porsche 911. Someone else will come and it'll be the 4S. Then someone will have GT2 or GT3. And Porsche, like many of these high-end manufacturers, is they're absolute geniuses when it comes to just adding what are essentially random numbers and letters. <laughs> One will have... 600 horsepower and the other will have 700 horsepower despite the fact that there is no road anywhere within 100 miles of me where having anything more than two or 300 horsepower does you any good these letters and numbers that you see on the back of audis and porsches and stuff is that our yams absolutely it's a status game and and as you're describing that you know i'm not that interested in cars but but i know as you're describing the 600 versus the 700 I know that if I was into cars and I was driving a 600 and I saw somebody with a 700, even though I could never use the 700, I would be, fuck, you know. And if I got a 700, I'd be like, yes, that's human life. And there's lots in the book about all the bad things that status pursue. But there's also progress. You know, the people working for these car companies are doing everything they can to make their cars fractionally better because they're also competing. People at Porsche are competing with their peers in Porsche. But who can achieve this breakthrough? And Porsche itself is competing with Ferrari. And, and how can we win against Ferrari? So it's all of this status competition leads to progress, I think, you know, in the human story. 
Right. Although I guess one could say that where it goes haywire from an evolutionary perspective is where resources start getting poured into status competitions that have no real utilitarian connection with human needs. Ultimately, humanity is not bettered by having a 700 horsepower sports car, right? Much in the same way as having like a giant yam is probably not as useful as having like a lot of smaller yams. <laughs> yeah, well, it depends. I mean, you know, in the book, I, I tell the story of, of modernity through the perspective of status play. There's, there's lots of ways humans compete for status. There, there are basically things like age and beauty. But what the book's really about are the three ways we've evolved to compete for status. And the basic way is dominance. So dominance is we've been using since we were before before we were human. It's the animalistic aggression. I'm going to fight you or I'm going to threaten you. You know, dominance also when people are bullying online and coercing online, that's also dominance. So you can force people to attend to you in humility. That's dominance. Um, but there's but then you know when we settle down and we started living in communities, dominance status play is bad. You can't have people just fighting each other constantly. So we evolved to really exploit the the, the prestige forms of status and to earn prestige you've got to be you show yourself to be useful to the group so if you're useful to the group you earn prestige and there are two ways of being useful to the group you know one way is the way that we've been talking about competence success I'm going to make a better car. I'm going to grow a bigger yam. I'm going to be a better storyteller, a better hunter, a better finder of honey or whatever it is. But also virtue. So people who are conspicuously virtuous certain status, and that could be somebody who is generous with resources, courageous in battle, but also an enforcer, somebody somebody that knows the, the, the norms of the group well and enforces those norms. And that's, I think, where status games go often go really bad. You know, one of the things about these different kinds of game dominance virtue and success is is that they're never pure they're always mixed in you know like a boxing match is a dominance game obviously but it's also a virtue game because it's about rules and it's a, it's also a, a success game boxing isn't just brute force it's skill when things go really badly wrong it's what i call dominance virtue games we're enforcing the rules of our game with coercion and force when you see groups in which people are celebrated and held up in high status because they are conspicuously using dominance to enforce the moral rules of their group, that's where things go wrong. And, and you see that kind of dynamic in everything from cancel culture, even up to and including genocide. That's a foundational hypocrisy of modern human societies where creeds that are nominally based on virtue, uh, as soon as the hierarchy is challenged, there's this primal reversion to a dominance game. It's, it becomes the, the sort of lower common denominator of enforcement. As I was reading it, it struck me that a lot of conflicts historically take place on the boundaries uh, between one status regime and another status regime. Before the French Revolution, you had a conflict between what were known as sword nobility and robe nobility. And the older families in, in the French aristocracy who regarded themselves as the sword nobility, they traced their lineage back to kings who laid siege to castles and stuff, and they resented the robe nobility who maybe had bought their way into the aristocracy. Yeah, and also it kind of touches upon that, that that kind of spiteful and snobbish thing that's just built, it's baked into human nature. So so if you think of a status game, it's essentially it's a bunch of people coming together and deciding on what kinds of beliefs and symbols are going to signify status and what aren't. And so, you know, we all play these games, but what we do is that we look down on people playing other 
other games by different rules. A great example that I found by personality psychologist Sam Gosling, who writes about, he sees this in personality groups because he, he's a personality psychologist. And, and, and in his students, all the extroverts group together and judge negatively the introverts because they say, you know, how could they be so rude and snobbish and so on? They don't contribute to conversation. And then the introverts group together and say of the extroverts, they just will not shut up. They're always gabbling on. You know, it's just exhausting. So, so each, each kind of group or game is deranking the other game for not following their own rules. <laughs> so, so, you know, it, it's by the same logic that, that somebody from America or England can look down their nose at somebody from China for spitting in the streets. But then somebody in Japan will look down at somebody from the UK or Canada or, or the US for blowing their nose in public. Because in Japan, that's seen as as disgusting as spitting in the street. So we all, uh, as a group or as a game, define the things that at the equal status and define the things that equal don't status. But we judge the whole world by those rules, not just our game. You raise the example of Japan. And in your book, you talk about the hikikomori, usually young men who have essentially stopped leaving their, their house. Yeah. Can they be seen as an example of people who they can't play the game? They're basically saying, I concede, game over. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I was really struck by that when I was looking into the Hikimori because Japan is, is a very stratified, very intense kind of status game culturally. And the pressure on, on young people is often uh, overwhelming. And when you look at the kinds of things Hikikomori say to researchers, it, you know, lots of that is bound up in, I don't like being judged. I can't connect into groups. The basic kind of fundamental of a status game is, it, is its connection and status. We connect into groups. And then once we've connected into groups, we jostle for status within them. We, we try and earn the esteem of, of people in that group. And the hikikomori tend to have uh, failed at both of those things. They, they don't feel connected into any groups and they don't feel respected. They don't feel they earn status. So they, they withdraw. And, and humans being a social animal, a hypersocial animal, the only thing you can do to withdraw the game of life is to shut yourself in a room. This is one of the reasons that video game addiction is such a huge draw for, for teenagers and young men who don't want to or feel they can't compete in the world of education or or something because these games are now networked and because they have elaborate subcultures and online forums you can be a sort of celebrity and hero and alpha male within that narrow subculture and and have admirers all over the world yeah. despite the fact that you don't have any money and maybe you're well into adulthood and you never leave the house you still live with your parents which wasn't true of video games maybe 20 years ago before they were socially networked Somewhere out there is a game you can win and be a hero at. Before I wrote this book, I would have probably had a slightly negative view of these people. But but now it's changed the way I see it. Connection and status, they, they're fundamental human needs. You know, without them, we break psychologically. We, we collapse. Well, you talk about social genomics. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that because there's a scientific basis for what you just said. That's right. They've even found that we, that we begin to suffer physically if we're denied status. There was an extraordinary study done in the UK here um, on, the, on the British Civil Service, which is you know, the huge bureaucracy and very, very stratified. And scientists found that the further you went down the ranking, the worse your health outcomes and the, and the, and the lower your ability to recover from disease and the higher your, you know, the lower your mortality. And so the obvious thing is, oh, well, that's just, you know, the, the poorer people are, the less they can work out and the worse their food. But it, but it wasn't that. One level down from the very top 
was slightly worse than, than the level above it. And it was even found in baboons. So they experimented in the lab on baboons where they, where, where they looked at a baboon, I don't know if you call it a pack or a troop, uh, the hierarchy. And, and just like in the British bureaucracy of the civil, civil service, they found the lower the hierarchy, the more vulnerable they were to various diseases. They artificially changed the hierarchy. And lo and behold, as they changed the hierarchy, the health outcomes, the health outcomes then changed in lockstep. So then the question is, of course, is why? There's this field of social genomics, which is a relatively new field, and, and it's basically this idea of how our social lives affect the function of our genes. And so the idea there is that if the brain understands that we, are, we have been deranked or we're not doing particularly well in the status game, you know, it can pick up where we are in that ranking and, and it puts us into a kind of defensive physical states to prepare for potential attack. So inflammation will increase and viral response will decrease that's the way that we've evolved to prepare for physical attack. Does this mean that it's a kind of pipe dream to imagine a classless society? It's a total pipe dream. It's a bitter pill to swallow. <laughs> I kind of hesitated about putting it in the book, but I ended up feeling that it was, it, it, ultimately I, I could not fight the, the conclusion that, that equality is an impossible dream because that, that need for status is absolutely baked into us. And the final chapter in the book is, I call it the parable of the communists, because it's the story of what happened when these millions of people decided to create what they called a kingdom of equality and remove the need for status or try to remove the need for status from society and just keep the belonging connection only. And as you know, everybody knows that was a disaster. But what fascinated me was was how quickly it became so stratified. Um, it, was, it was just a reverse hierarchy where workers and families of workers were at the top and families of bourgeoisie were at the bottom. And it was even more brutally stratified than the capitalist West. Absolutely stunningly brutal and unfair. And the other thing that I didn't know um, was was that there was a, there was an incredible reversal by Stalin, where in the Lenin era, the idea was we're going to create this kingdom of equality and we're going to get rid of any all awards, all those you know, trinkets, um, titles were were got rid of. But Stalin brought it all back, and, he, and even accused people of what he called equality mongering. And he would say things like, you know, people what like want to earn a cow, own a cow, and there's nothing wrong with that. So so I, I didn't know this. I mean, maybe maybe lots of people do, but I never knew this that Stalin actually totally reneged on the communist ideal of getting rid of the status urge and it wasn't just in the soviet union you know it's obviously in cambodia it was in china these also became incredibly stratified hierarchical places but all that happens is the is the elites flip they go from the bottom to the top and the people that were on the top go to the bottom that's all that's happening utopians talk of equality but all they're doing is is changing the hierarchy if you're a regular listener to the quillette podcast you'll be familiar with BetterHelp, one of our original advertisers. Well, thanks to everything that's happened since early 2020 and the stresses that the pandemic has put on everyone, the online therapy services at BetterHelp are more relevant and in demand than ever. BetterHelp will help you unlock the tools you need to help with motivation, depression, anxiety, battling your temper, stress, dealing with insecurity in relationships or at work, whatever you need. Especially at a time like this, no one should be anxious about admitting that they're going through normal human struggles, because you deserve to be happy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. And you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't feel comfortable doing so. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. 
join the millions of people who are seeing what therapy is really about. And Quillette Podcast listeners get 10% off their first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash Quillette. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Quillette. Thanks to BetterHelp for their sponsorship. And now back to the Quillette podcast. Speaking of changing the hierarchy, are you familiar with the Dr. Seuss story, The Sneetches? No. So there's these creatures known as Sneetches uh, who live in this typically Seussian wilderness. And this guy shows up and has a machine that allows them to put stars on their belly. What happens is the few Sneetches that were born with stars on their bellies get extremely upset because they've lost their special status. Mm. Soon everybody has stars in their belly and some of them have dozens of stars. And then, so the guy comes back and says, I have a new machine. It's called the star off machine. (laughs) And he now charges people to remove their stars. And he convinces them that the greatest mark of status is not having stars. There's this famous scene at the end where the Sneetches are running in a kind of infinity loop from the star on machine to the star off machine, depending on basically it's sort of like hemlines going up and down. Uh, And the only one who's happy about all of this is is this guy with his his two machines. <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah. So so this guy, I don't think he has a name in the story. Oh, yeah, he does. Sorry, I'm just looking at it. It's Sylvester McMonkey McBean. <laughs> so in all of these status games, the gamification of life, is there an identifiable group, this is sort of the real-life version of Sylvester McMonkey McBean, who can reliably identify what the status game is and profit from it? I'm thinking of like maybe in Micronesia, uh, somebody who becomes a sort of a fixer for hooking yams up with up-and-coming tribal leaders. Yeah, I'm immediately thinking of the luxury fashion game. My wife is editor of Elle magazine in the UK, so I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with <laughs> the madness of the fashion world and the luxury world. And, and yeah, I mean, that, that's absolutely... Absolutely. Sounds like the story of the Sneetches. I mean, that's, that, that, that is fashion. The markups in the fashion world, the luxury goods game, are just extraordinary. One of the um, studies that I found looking at the luxury attire game that I write about in the book was brilliant. <laughs> I forget the exact numbers, but in, in the luxury goods, the smaller the logo, the higher the status. And, and they actually worked out a dollar figure for every reduction in logo size and the most expensive handbags. The logo is on the inside and you can tell the bag by the quality of the stitching and little tiny little details that only the people in the know understand. Researchers call it the status detection system that's kind of built into our brain and is absolutely fine-tuned into constantly looking at where we sit versus other people and, and you know, symbols and clues. Even I, in my ignorance, know that there's something called the Hermes, I think it's called the Birkin handbag. Yeah, yeah. Which sells for six figures and it's not even on the list of top five most expensive handbags. I know you present this gamification of status as having, in some sense, a positive effect on human ingenuity. But when you see people paying hundreds of thousands of dollars or even millions of dollars for handbags, it is hard to defend when there are people on the planet who don't have enough to eat, no? In the book, I'm not taking any position that it's good or bad. I'm just saying that it is. And here's the good stuff and here's the bad stuff. And and, and it's easy to forget when you're looking at these these luxury attire games, these companies are employing lots of people and that's really important. They're paying millions of dollars in tax and that's really important. So, you know, there are good outcomes and there are bad outcomes. But the real people who are being exploited are the people who are buying <laughs> buying the products and the people who are benefiting you know, are the employees and the, and the tax office. To the extent there's a progressive income tax system and high sales taxes, the broad public becomes the Sylvester McMonkey McBean of this. Yeah. And that, that's what we always tend to forget when we're 
sort of down on companies and organizations. A successful organization that is actually doing well by its staff is, you know, is a positive status game that they're giving their teams meaning. They're going to work and, and they're and they're competing for status and they're feeling good about their jobs. And not only that, they're generating tax money, you know, which is doing lots of good as well. So yeah, I think it's always a danger to say good or bad. It, it's definitely both with status. At the end of the book, you provide some structured suggestions for how a person could live a more fulfilled life in the shadow of all these games we're expected to play. As I was reading that, I was thinking of when people talk about mindfulness and meditation, one of the common denominators of all these techniques, they take you out of these games. They ask you to think about your breathing. They ask you to think about your body. They ask you to think about the air around you. And the things they ask you to focus on typically are things that every human being on earth has access mm. to. They focus on the things that have no connection at all to status. And maybe that's one of the reasons we find meditation incredibly hard because it seems like our brains spend a lot of time on figuring out our status and how we can improve it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, in the groups that we evolved in, it was a basic heuristic. The more status you got, the greater your selection of potential mates, the safer your sleeping sites, the, the more food you got. It's completely plugged into the, the basic Darwinian goals of survival and reproduction. The more status you get, the better you're going to survive and reproduce. So it's that fundamental. I've no doubt that meditation can reduce the kind of cravings that they talk about. But but you also must have noticed that people who meditate a lot end up being quite pleased with themselves. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's extremely true, yeah. <laughs> there was one hilarious study I write about in the book. They, they got 3,000, I think they were Dutch academics, got, did a study of 3,700 mindfulness meditators. And these were meditators who specifically practiced to reduce what they called their ego needs. And they found that they scored high in measures of spiritual superiority. You know, so the ideas like, if only other people had the amazing insights I have, the world would be a better place. And, and you know, the researchers said that what they found was that they called it, and this is a quote, the exact opposite of enlightenment. You know, th these meditators really thought they were pretty great because they had all these insights. And, and, you know, so it's funny, but it's also demonstrates the fact that you cannot get rid of this status urge because it's absolutely baked into our brains. It's baked into how we pass and experience reality. Will Storr's book is called The Status Game on social position and how we use it. Thanks so much for being on the Quillette Podcast. Thanks, John. Thanks for your great questions. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.